We come now to our final study through the book of James. We're going to begin at James chapter 5, starting now at verse 13. He's continuing on the idea of suffering and patiently enduring under hardship and trusting God in such difficult times. And that's where we begin now, verse 13, where he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, we see again the general context that James is speaking about, about how we should honor God and persevere and trust him in the midst of suffering. And one way we demonstrate our honor to God, one way we demonstrate our trust to God in the midst of suffering is to praise him, to pray unto him. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. The suffering need to pray. The cheerful should sing psalms of praise to God. And the sick should call for the elders of the church, asking them to pray for their need. I think it's interesting that James has the same advice for the suffering as for the cheerful one. Take it to the Lord. Are you suffering? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are you cheerful? Take it to the Lord in praise. Matter of fact, couldn't you switch the commands as well? I mean, both are true. The suffering should sing psalms. The cheerful should pray. I mean, these are responsibilities that we have, and I would even say opportunities that we have as believers. One other thing that according to James Moffat, the commentator, he says that this phrase sing praises there or sing psalms there in verse 13, that actually it refers to public worship, often with musical accompaniment. So this is the idea. Uh, Praise, prayer, but then not only that, in verse 14, he speaks of the idea is that if someone is sick, they should call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And I find this to be fascinating for several reasons. Number one, it assumes that believers are in a church with elders, spiritual leaders over them. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand something again and again. Yes, The salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is an individual work. God doesn't save us according to group or class or race or ethnicity, any of that. It's an individual work where the individual deals with God and repents and believes and receives the salvation that God has for them. We get that. But Christianity is a one another faith. It's a faith in community. So even though we are individually set right with God, yet we are saved to be in community. And this, verses 13 and 14 of James chapter 5, assumes that the believer is in community. And might I say this, in a community with some kind of structure. There is a church, because it talks about the elders of the church, and it talks about elders having some kind of structure, some kind of leadership. And so I think we can be flexible. We don't have to necessarily be traditional in rigorous denominational systems, but there needs to be some kind of structure. There needs to be some kind of leadership. And our faith is never meant to be merely individualistic. So the person who is sick, what does it say there? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. I want you to notice that. 
Here, James put the initiative on the one who is sick. Now, I think it is good. I think it is wonderful if the leaders, the elders, the pastors of the church, if they take the initiative and go and ask the sick person, can we pray for you? That's good. Nothing wrong with that. But we have to admit that here in James chapter 5, James puts the initiative on the person who's sick. And in my more than 30 years of pastoral experience, I can tell you that this all too rarely happens. As a pastor, as a leader in the church, we are thrilled when somebody contacts the church, they send an email, they give a call to the church, and they say, I want the pastor or some elders to come over and pray for me. I'm sick. This is a wonderful thing. And so please remember, believer, don't wait for the church to come to you about your need. If you have a need, if you're sick, you say, I want the elders of the church to come and pray for me. That's where James puts the initiative. And what does he say? He says, verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is fascinating because here James not only speaks about the idea of prayer, but also of the anointing with oil. And what are we to make of this? Well, I think there's two aspects of this, and I believe that these two aspects are complementary. I don't think they're contradictory. Here's the two aspects. Number one, oil in the Old Testament is a consistent emblem of the Holy Spirit. And so the idea of somebody being anointed that is with um, oil placed upon them, upon their head in some way, sort of in a ceremonial way, it demonstrates the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon that person. And so this is a way of saying, Holy Spirit, we invite you in here. Holy Spirit, we want you to mark and cover over and overflow in this person's life. Now, many times pastors will carry with them or they'll have at their church anointing oil. Well, they'll take now many times anointing in the Old Testament. It was done by pouring a large quantity of oil upon somebody's head. But, but when we anoint with oil, we're doing it sort of in the custom, in the symbol. We'll, we'll take a, a dab of oil and we'll put it on the, somebody's forehead and, and we'll, we'll practice that, anoint with oil, inconsistent with the scriptures. But really, it's not about the oil or the amount of oil. It's saying, Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this situation. We ask that you would mark and cover and overflow in this. That's one aspect of this. But here's a second aspect. According to many Bible commentators, Anointing with oil was also done as a medicinal practice in the ancient world. Apparently, oil massages were considered medicinal. Luke chapter 10, verse 34, mentions the application of oil in a medicinal sense. Again, in the parable of the... Um, of the Good Samaritan. And so the idea that the application of oil could have a medical effectiveness was apparently, at least according to the commentator D. Edmund Hebert, this was well known in the ancient world. And according to another commentator named Burdick, the word here for anoint is not the usual one used in the New Testament. But this one has even more of a medicinal sense to it. 
So I, I think both ideas are complementary. It could very well be that what James is saying with this, pray for the person, anoint them with oil, invite the marking and the presence and the overflow of the Holy Spirit. And it also has the complementary meaning of get this person the best medical attention they can find. Give them medicinal treatments. Because again, apparently the application of oil, according to biblical passages and what we know of ancient culture, the application of oil was thought to be medicinal. Again, I like that idea. Pray for the person, invite the Holy Spirit in this situation, but at the same time, get them the best medical care that you can. And now look at the result here in verses 15 and 16, where it says this, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, there is a lot in James chapters 15 and James chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. There's a lot in these two verses for us to unpack. Let's begin with the first phrase. Carries on, of course, from verses 13 and 14, where it says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick. In other words, in verses 13 and 14, he said, If you're suffering, give it to the Lord. Prayer, praise. If you're sick, invite the elders of the church to come and pray for you. Uh, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And we talked about the two senses of anointing, of, of, of marking and overflow of the Holy Spirit and medical treatment. And then it says now in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, many people have wondered if James here is guaranteeing healing for the sick who are prayed for in faith. In other words, you pray in faith and the sick will be healed. I mean, look at what he says here in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Some people wonder, is James guaranteeing physical, immediate, bodily healing for those who are prayed for in true faith? Or, or is the reference here to the idea of ultimate resurrection? Now, I've got to say, I think what James is speaking about here is ultimately having to do with resurrection. Why? Well, notice the phrasing. The prayer of faith will save the sick. Now, that idea of save there in verse 15, it certainly can have the idea of healing, but it goes beyond it as well to what we would consider salvation. And the Lord will raise him up. Can that mean to be raised up from a sickbed? Absolutely it can mean that. But we also have the intimation of resurrection there. And it also has the idea of spiritual healing. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You see, the reference to sins being forgiven uh, has the idea that James is considering this a spiritual work and a healing, not necessarily a physical healing. Okay, but look. Be careful with this. The context of this statement demands that James does not exclude physical healing as an answer to prayer. I think what James is saying is that I'm talking about something more than just physical healing. I'm talking about what God does spiritually in a person's life, especially their salvation and resurrection. 
we can still pray for other people in faith, expecting that God will heal them, and then, in faith, leave the matter to God's hands. I think there's uh, two ways in which we can error in this way. The one is to think, well, God doesn't heal anybody. No, brother, God's not going to heal you. God doesn't really care that much about this. Uh, you'll, you'll be rescued at the resurrection. That's it. That's one way that people take this. I'll tell you another way that people take this. They take it to mean that God will heal everybody instantly if they're prayed for in faith. That's another wrong way to take this. Look, brothers and sisters, I got to say, we pray for people in faith. God sometimes heals them and it's glorious when he does and sometimes he does not heal them. And it's rough. It's suffering that needs to be endured when God does not heal. And why is it that some are healed and others are not? We can't give a definite answer to that question, can we? We just don't know sometimes. Now, sometimes a person is not healed because the prayer is not made in faith. They don't believe the person praying for them to not believe. I, I believe that. That's certainly true. Sometimes. But other times, a prayer of faith is made and God says, well, I will heal my dear child but I will heal you in the resurrection. I can say this, that God promises absolute bodily perfect healing for every believer as part of our salvation. But, but here it is. Ultimately, that happens in resurrection. We live in what the Bible calls tents. Our physical bodies are like tents. And along the way, God may patch up this tent, and sometimes he'll patch it up miraculously. But ultimately, God's answer for our problem of us living in these tents is to give us a mansion in heaven, is to give us a resurrection body which will never perish. I mean, clearly, God does not grant immediate healing for every prayer of faith. Why? Oftentimes, these reasons are hidden in the heart and mind of God. Now, it's true. Sometimes people are not healed because no prayer of faith is offered. So we should pray. We should pray with a humble confidence that people will be healed unless perhaps God makes it clear, simply and powerfully, that it's not his will at the moment to do it. And then having prayed, we leave the matter of God, to God, I should say. So this idea is very important. Let's pray for one another, believe that God wants to heal because God is a healing God, but ultimately we leave the healing up to him, trusting that in the end, he will heal every believer in this part of the resurrection, part of the uh, salvation we have in Jesus Christ. It's the legacy, it's the inheritance of our resurrection. Now, he also says here in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James is reminding us here that mutual confession and prayer brings healing. It brings healing spiritually, and it may also bring healing physically. When we get unresolved sin out of the way, it's a way of removing hindrances to the work of the Holy Spirit. And we should look for God to do this work 
more and more. So what does he say? Look at it here. And I got to say, sometimes I think that this is one of the most neglected principles among Christians today, where he says simply in verse 16, confess your trespasses, your sins, one to another. See, I think that confession to one another in the body of Christ is important. Sin demands to have us all to itself. It demands to isolate us from other people in the body of Christ. Confession of sin will break the power of secret sin. Now, I don't think your confession of sin needs to be made to a priest. It doesn't be need to be made to an imagined mediator between you have you have between I mean a human mediator. But simply we confess our sins one to another as is appropriate. If you are caught in the bondage of secret sin, you need to confess that sin to another brother or sister in Christ. Now, that confession needs to be made wisely. There are sins of a certain nature that should only be confessed to someone we can trust, someone that would not be an aspect of temptation in this particular sin. No, no, no. These things need to be done with wisdom, but it needs to be done. And nothing in in this in this suggests or 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 precludes the idea that Sin should especially be confessed if physical healing is at risk. Listen, I'll tell you how I practice this practically. Um, When somebody comes to me and asks if I would pray for them because they're sick, one of the questions that I often ask, I won't say I do this every time, but I often ask them, is there something you need to get right between you and God before I pray for you for this? Now, again, I don't want to say for a moment not for a moment, that every sick person has some kind of unconfessed sin. But isn't it wise, if we're going to pray for healing for a person, that at least we eliminate that possibility and just ask and just say, hey, is there something hindering your relationship with God that you need to make right before I pray for you for healing? And so confession of sin should happen. It's true that this was much more a practice in the early church. James Moffat, in his commentary, writes this. He says, Now, in the primitive church, this was openly done as a rule before the congregation. The earliest manual of the church practice tells us this. You must confess your sins in church and not betake yourself to prayer with a bad conscience. Again, that's from the commentator James Moffat. It was done in the early church, confession of sin. But it's also interesting to see, and I say this as somebody who's done some study of the historic and biblical phenomenon of revival or spiritual awakening, that there is this aspect of great conviction of sin and subsequent confession of sin that is common during times of spiritual awakening or revival. There's really nothing unusual about confession of sin, sometimes very open confession of sin, during times of revival. I remember reading the writing of a man named Jonathan Goforth. He talks about during uh, a revival season in Asia that confession was almost invariably the prelude to blessing. 
he spoke about one aspect of a significant Korean revival associated with Jonathan Goforth. It was said this. Uh, this is by a man named William Newton Blair. He says this. We may have, I'm quoting here, we may have our theories of the desirability or undesirability about public confession of sin. I have had mine, but I know that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession and no power on earth can stop it. Public confession of sin can be a powerful thing and an indication of a great outpouring of the Spirit of God. Now, of course, as I've said before, confession needs to be wise. It can be made public, but it should be made discreetly. Oftentimes, the confession needs to be no more than what is needed to ask people to pray. You don't necessarily have to go into the details of your sin. It can be enough to say publicly, pray for me. I need victory over my besetting sin. Sometimes it would be wrong to go into more detail than that. And confession of sin sometimes also needs to be made directly to the people that we have sinned against. If we have harbored a bitter or unforgiving spirit, if we've spoken evilly behind people's backs, then oftentimes the solution for us is to confess our sin to others and to do it directly. And oftentimes I find something very interesting. We as Christians are sometimes willing to confess our sins to God, but not to people. Again, I find this phenomenon fascinating in these seasons of revival or spiritual awakening, we find in such seasons that confession is often made to people, but it's made before God. James says, confess your trespasses to one another. In other words, I don't confess my sins. What James is talking about here is not the confession of my sins to God in the presence of other people, but no, it's my confession of my sin to others in the presence of God. It isn't that we confess our sins to God and other people merely hear, but we confess our sins to other people. We say something like this, brothers and sisters, I have sinned. I need the forgiveness of God and I need your forgiveness. Would you please pray for me that I would be forgiven? So confession should be discreet. It should be honest. It should be filled with integrity. It should be regarded as a sacred trust when other people confess their sins in our hearing. It's a very important thing for us to do and for us to consider how, in an appropriate way, God would spark a confession of sin among believers today. Again, according to James Moffat, the English prayer book before the communion service, the minister is to give an invitation like this. I, I love this quote from the English prayer book. He says this, quote, Come to me or to some other discreet and learned minister of God's word and open his grief that by the ministry of God's holy word he may receive the benefit of absolution. You know what I like that phrase? that he may open his grief. Brother, sister, if you are beset by sin, if there is secret sin that is dominating and in some sense, you know, just, just controlling your life in some way, you need to confess it. 
You need to find a trusted brother or sister. You, you need to get together with that small group and do something that will be a big step of faith. But you got to believe I'm going to confess my sin before that trusted individual, before that small group. Because I'll tell you this, real, deep, genuine confession of sin has been a feature of every genuine awakening or revival in the past 250 years. But it's nothing new. I love reading what it says in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 17 through 20. It says that of this great work of God, what we would consider revival in the city of Ephesus, it says that many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. That was Christians getting right with God. An open confession of sin was part of it. Now, at the end of it, James says in verse 16, I, I told you, verses 15 and 16 are power-packed. Let me read to you these two verses again. Verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I like that last phrase in verse 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You see, in writing about the need to pray for the suffering, for the sick, and for the sinning, James points to the effective nature of prayer. Prayer is effective when it is fervent and when it is offered by a righteous man. Now notice that. Much of our prayer is not effective simply because it is not fervent. What's the idea of fervent here? Well, one idea of the word fervent here, and this is pointed out by F.B. Meyer, is that the idea is just strong. It's a strong prayer, an energized prayer. It is a fervent prayer. So often, and maybe I'll just speak for myself here, my prayers are not effective because they are so lukewarm and cold before God. Sometimes when I pray, it's almost as if I, I would say these words. Now, I would never say these words. I'm too spiritual to say these words. But this is where my heart's at. God, I don't really care about this, but I'll talk to you about it. Why don't you care about it for me? Listen, true prayer is a sharing of the heart of God where we enter into the things that he cares about. And so our hearts burn with a fervor for the things that activate and energize the heart of God. Effective prayer must be fervent, not because we have to emotionally persuade a reluctant God, but because we have to gain God's heart by being fervent for the things that he is fervent for. So effective prayer is fervent, but then it is also offered by a righteous man, or may I say a righteous woman as well. Now, don't we take great relief in realizing that the grounds of our righteousness is what Jesus Christ has done for us. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you that I don't have to earn my own righteousness. But I can say, God, I stand before you as a righteous man, not because I'm so wonderful, but because I have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ as his gift. He took my sin on the cross and I received his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, that is a powerful and a glorious thing. Now, I want you to notice something. He says that effective prayer comes because someone is fervent, because they are righteous, which refers to their own manner of living, but even more so the righteousness they have in Jesus Christ. Fervent, righteous. You know what it doesn't say there? It doesn't say that effective prayer happens because it's long. I think that sometimes we as believers, we put too much emphasis on the length of someone's prayer. As if it is the length of prayer that makes it fervent, not necessarily. That it's the length of prayer that demonstrates that someone's righteous, not necessarily. No, fervent, righteous, but not necessarily uh, long. That, that isn't included here in this list. Now, as an example of answered prayer, look here at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Here, James presents Elijah as a model of earnest prayer. He was so effective in prayer that it extended to the weather. He prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, as he says in verse 18, and the rain came. But what this shows is that Elijah's heart was in tune with God's heart. Why did he pray that the rain would stop? Not because he just didn't want it to rain. He prayed earnestly that way because he rightly sensed that this is what God wanted to do. As a rebuke, to the idol of the weather god Baal that the, they were worshiping in the northern kingdom of Israel, God wanted to withhold the rain to show that their worship, their honor, their sacrifice to the weather god Baal had no effectiveness. So what did Elijah do? Verse 17 says that he prayed earnestly. Now, I like that phrasing in the original language. In the original language, the phrasing works like this. He prayed with prayer. Adam Clark says that prayed with prayer there is a Hebraic way of saying that he prayed fervently because in Hebrew, you intensify something by repeating it. So to say that he prayed, prayed, he prayed with prayer is a way to say that he prayed earnestly. He prayed fervently. Nevertheless, verse 17 says he was a man with a like nature like ours. Now, if Elijah had my same nature, that means that I can have his same power in prayer as I draw near, unhindered, sin confessed, put out of the way, walking right as I can and as the Holy Spirit gives me the grace and the ability to do. I share God's heart. I pray fervently. I pray earnestly. And God does his work in and through my prayers and your prayers. Now, the book of James ends with these last two verses, verses 19 and 20 of James chapter 5. Let's read those two verses. He says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, I love how James, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, phrased that. What do I mean? You see, wanders from the truth is a pretty good picture there, isn't it? Most people don't wander deliberately. As a matter of fact, the very word wander has the idea of something kind of casual, something accidental, something without a lot of intention behind it. To wander means you just kind of drift away. Nevertheless, the wandering person usually gets off track. They often find themselves in danger. So if that's us, then what do we need? Well, we need someone to turn us back. I love that as well. This shows, verse 19, where it says, and someone turns it back, it shows that God uses human instruments in bringing sinners back from the error of their ways. Now, God doesn't always use human instruments. Sometimes when somebody's off in error, God just says, look, I'm going to reach that person. I'm going to get them. That's all there is to it. Sometimes that's how God works. But there are many other times where God says, I'm going to use a human instrument. Now, check this out. One reason God uses human instruments is because it brings him more glory than if God were just to do the work by himself. You see, well, let me speak for myself. I'm not such a great tool or instrument in the hand of God. Uh, if I were a knife in God's hand, you know, an instrument or a tool, maybe I wouldn't be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Maybe I'd be dull and nicked and not have such a great point. Now, if God can do good work, great work, amazing work, through a flawed tool, it gives even more credit to the worker, to the workman who's doing the job. And when God uses flawed people like me, flawed people like you, it's not only me who's flawed, it's you as well. When God uses flawed instruments like us, it can and it does bring him even more glory. And so along this line, can we not say, that when we refuse to make ourselves available for God's service, even though we're weak, even though we are failing, when we refuse to make ourselves available to God's service, we are in some way robbing God of his glory. If God can glorify himself through a weak vessel like me, through a weak vessel like you, you should let him do it. It'll bring him more glory. Now, there's a great reward for this. Look at verse 20. He who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There is blessing for the one who loves his brother enough to confront him and who turns that brother or sister from the error of his ways. He has been used of God to save that soul from death and to cover a multitude of sins. Now, you know what I like about this? It speaks very powerfully 
of the restoration that is possible for those who have sinned. Do you have the picture here in verses 19 and 20? Let me read these two verses to you again. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This shows that restoration is possible in Jesus Christ. I'm wondering if there's not somebody listening to this or viewing this who feels that they've gone beyond. They've sinned so badly, so terribly. They've been so uh, mired in the depths of sins that maybe restoration isn't really possible. Listen, no, these two verses tell us that restoration is possible. Let me read to you a quote. It's a little bit long, but I think it's a good one. A quote from Charles Spurgeon along these lines. In a sermon he preached upon this text, he said this, quote, I know of men of good standing in the gospel ministry who, 10 years ago, fell into sin. And that is thrown in our teeth to this very day. Do you speak of them? You were once informed, why, 10 years ago they did so-and-so. Brethren, Christian men ought to be ashamed of themselves for taking notice of such things so long afterwards. True, we may use more caution in our dealings, but to reproach a fallen brother for what he did so long ago is contrary to the spirit of John who went after Peter three days after he had denied his master with oaths and curses. You see what he's saying? Restoration is possible. God is a restoring God. He can save us from a multitude of sins. He can save the soul from death. God loves doing this. Now, we can say that James concluded his letter this way because this is exactly what he has attempted to do throughout the letter. He wants to confront those who have erred from the truth. And in the big theme of James's letter, this is the error. The people who have wandered from a living faith and who are at least in danger of thinking they could be saved by a dead faith. Brothers and sisters, if we take anything from this letter of James, we need to come back to the idea that we cannot be ultimately rescued by a dead faith, no, only by a living faith, whose life is demonstrated by the fact that it has an impact, a work in our real practical lives. You see, we need to be people who not only hear the word of God, but also do it because a living faith will have its proof. I want it to have its proof in my life. I pray you want it to have its proof in your life. May God pour out his grace upon you upon myself, I don't mind saying that, and upon each one of us as we endeavor to listen to the wisdom of God's word and walk forward in a living faith, better informed by the wisdom from the book of James.